If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. Welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnand. And me, William Durimple. It's now getting to such epic proportions, I'm going to have to call the United <laughs> Nations. This is just now, this is just, this is a conflict zone now, is what You've this is becoming. You've just got to get used to the, 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 the full sort of But we're also on twice this week. You had practice at this two days ago. I don't understand how this, I don't understand how you forget your name in two days. I don't understand. Luckily... We both remember the name of our special, special guest. Uh, Part two of this series is is Giles Milton. Hello, Giles Milton. Hello there. Hello, Giles Milton. You know, one thing that we didn't talk about last time, before we get into the the, the meat of why you're here with us on Empire, you have a podcast. Tell us a bit about your podcast. I do. An eight-part narrative podcast. Uh, It investigates one of the great unsolved mysteries of the Cold War. It's the spring of 1956, and a world-famous diver goes missing, a spy, and he disappears without trace, and he is never seen again. What happened to him? There are dozens of theories about what might have happened. But what's extraordinary is the government to this day is covering up the truth. They put a 100-year embargo on what happened to this diver. And we we want to know why. And we discover a story. It involves MI6, the CIA, the KGB, and the royal family. Um, <laughs> the royal so family. The, it's always the royal family. <laughs> it's a hundred-year embargo. Yeah. Prince Andrew's so in there somewhere. <laughs> so we follow to the story of what happened in 1956 and the story of who is blocking this story now. And I have to say... We crack it in episode eight. Ooh. We will reveal all. Is oh. it Mount Batten? Is it Wait, Mount for Batten? God's sake, can I just, for God's sake and for the love of all that is holy, don't tell him because he doesn't do suspense. He doesn't do drama. He doesn't do discretion. Do not tell him the ending. Okay, well, I'm hooked. I'm going to listen. I think it's Mount Batten. William, it's called, anyway, it's yeah. called Ministry of Secrets. Ministry of Secrets. Thank you. Oh, you've got one listener already with me. Um, William, can you can you remind everybody why we split into two this week? Because it was this is such an important part of, of the Ottoman series. So the final episode of the narrative that we have been telling of the Ottoman Empire from the beginning with the Seljuk Turks breaking into Anatolia in the 11th century reaches its climax in this episode because we've seen the great Greek invasion of Anatolia coming through Smyrna in 1919, 1920. They've headed right into the interior of Anatolia, but it is their fate to meet the greatest of all Turkish generals and leaders, Ataturk, Mustafa Kemal, who has held the line near Ankara. And when we ended the episode last time, uh, he has just defeated the Greeks, and there is now a headlong Greek retreat back to Smyrna. Giles, tell us about that. The Greeks, as you say, have been totally vanquished on the battlefield, and uh, they now have to get back to Smyrna as quickly as they possibly can. They, they've lost everything. They've got no supplies. They've got no food. They've got very little water. And so they uh, make a, a headlong dash of hundreds of miles back to the what they think is going to be the safety of the Greek city of Smyrna. 
in their wake, it's not just the defeated Greek army, of course, it's all the little Greek communities that are scattered across Anatolia, villages, small towns, all of them see what's happening and they, they think we've got to get out as well. So, so you have this um, a huge army, defeated army in retreat, but at the same time, you have thousands of families, men, women, and children fleeing with whatever they can carry in their in their handcarts. And we should say that this is the pattern that we've been following now over, over several episodes of this unraveling of this incredibly mixed tapestry that the Ottoman Empire was. In village after village, town after town, right across Anatolia, through the Balkans, you have these mixed communities, Turks, Greeks, Bulgarians, Jews, Armenians, who have been living together in some sort of pluralistic equilibrium for hundreds of years. But now, with the birth of nationalism, with the First World War, and with the aftermath of this Greek invasion, the fabric, that interwoven quilt is unraveling. The different threads are Mm. being pulled apart. And it's no longer okay just to be a Greek villager sitting in the middle of Anatolia in the farm or the village that you've been farming since ancient Hellenistic times. Suddenly you are a a member of an enemy nation and you're no longer welcome. And and this sort of, you know, this this parade behind the the retreating Greek army is making its way to Smyrna. And as if they they expect that Smyrna is going to be a haven, we ought to look at what Smyrna is doing at this time. Because even in the spring, Smyrna finds its economy is completely crashed. This is this is now a, a, a place that doesn't work anymore. This is absolutely correct. Um, so so they're fleeing to a city. They're fleeing to a Greek city. These these villages, these refugees, is what they've become. But you know, as William says, a lot of these have lived here for centuries. They don't feel very Greek, and in mm. many cases, they don't even speak Greek. And they're going to end up heading first to a Greek city, and then they're going to end up in mainland Greece for the rest of their lives. Um, so a very difficult situation. But and as you say, in the city of Smyrna itself, everyone is keeping one eye on what's taking place outside and realizing that something has gone disastrously wrong. The economy, as you say, has crashed. But there's a bizarre sense of keeping the show on. The the road. The restaurants stay open. The bars are still happening. There are still soirees taking place. You know, the opera is still functioning. The theatre is still going. So um, it's almost like the city is in denial of the absolute crisis that is about to face it. And I, there's one important reason why everyone in Smyrna feels vaguely secure. And that is because when they look out into the Bay of Smyrna, they see 21 allied battleships who they know for sure, they think, are going to protect them. There's a nice quote here in in Philip Mansell's wonderful book on the Levant describing Smyrna at this time. And he said that there were 500 cafes, 13 cinemas, and many ragtime bars. Mm. Young women wore dresses only two inches below the knee. Heavens, what a place it is. As for the girls, oh Lord, wrote a British officer to his wife. I mean, it, so this the sensation that this that you know everything is going on that the deck chairs of the Titanics are still very much in place, even as as this catastrophe unravels. At what point do the refugees actually start making it into Smyrna itself, and what happens as a result? That sort of delicate balance that even now, you know, with the ragtime bars playing on bravely, even though they might be a little bit worried about what's behind them, if not, you know, the frigates in front of them. What happens when they arrive in Smyrna? 
So on the outskirts of Smyrna, I mentioned the Levantine suburb of Bornabat, and this is the first place where the Greek, the defeated Greek army will be seen by the inhabitants of Bornabat. And one of those inhabitants is a venerable old spinster named Hortense Woods. <laughs> and she looks out of her window on the 6th of September, 1922, and she sees the very first defeated troops, this rabble walking along the road, heading into Smyrna. They've lost their weaponry, they're shoeless, they just look vanquished, defeated. They've got defeat written all over them. But she she doesn't think much of it. She just thinks, oh, well, you know, a battle's taken place. They've lost it. She's very happy. She's going to stay in her house. And all the others in Bornabat, in this, in this extraordinary community of wealthy Levantines, they just think, well, you know, we'll, we'll sit it out and see what happens. They're not too concerned at this point. So when does that begin to turn, Giles? When do they suddenly realize that things are, are, are actually more serious than they think? So the, the soldiers, they move into Smyrna and the Greek warships that are in the Bay of Smyrna start to take off those troops. And this rings a, alarm bells, I think, uh, among many of the inhabitants of Smyrna. And on the 7th of September, the day after Hortense Wood sees those first defeated troops, the Greek administration of the city packs up locks up the doors of its of its administration buildings and heads out of town. And there's no suggestion that they're going to dig trenches, they're going to defend Smyrna, there's, there's literally no attempt at... Nothing at all, no. The Greeks in the town are looking at this with some alarm, because gradually, over the next few days, the city starts to pack up. It starts to sort of cease to function, if you like, the city administration. This is like um, descriptions of Kabul last year. Mm. I, I, I've got friends who were in Kabul, Afghan friends, who described the British embassy and these other embassies, which they'd always thought would be there, one by one closing as the Taliban approached this, this feeling. And just leaving, yes. And having a means to leave, but that is not available to the people of Smyrna, to ordinary people. So that's, sorry, the 7th. So you're talking about the 7th when the doors are locked and people are padlocking. On the 8th, this is the day when the British nationals and US, the American nationals start to be taken off by those British and American warships in the bay. Mm. So gradually the Western Western allies are thinking "Mm, we should take our, our people out of here. And they also land a very small number of troops to protect their interests in the city. So the Americans, for example, run uh, the big standard oil company uh, in Smyrna. So they post troops around that. They also have an uh, an American institute, collegiate institute, which they run. They have the YMCA. So buildings like that, and they're they're vast consulate as well. These all get protected by by troops. It's worth noting that the cinema is still playing its film every, it's still screening its (laughs) film every night, which happens to be a film called The Tango of Death, which uh, (laughs) given what is about to happen is Mm. um, hideously appropriate. By the end of the day, there are 50,000 troops on the quayside. Troops are pouring in by, by this stage. At first, it's a few a few dozen, then it's a few hundred, and then it's a few thousand. They congregate on the quayside, and they are taken off by uh, Greek naval vessels. The really big drama, I suppose, the turning point is on the 9th of September, and this is where Smyrniots really have their first frisson of absolute fear, because this is the day where the Turkish cavalry march into town. Mm. And there's this remarkable scene. I've read so many eyewitness accounts of people that the city falls silent as these cavalry marches along, these these uh, smartly dressed cavalry officers in their black fezes, their, their curved swords unsheathed, which they're holding in the air. 
and they they march in absolute silence. And there's a real sense of total terror of what's going to happen. I, I, mean, I, I often try to imagine what this must be like. You know, if you're if you're a mum with kids, or you're just an you know an ordinary person, and you're watching this happen, and you're watching these ships, and everybody who is deemed to be of value has gone, and you're left. What are you left to? In fact, you know what's really extraordinary? I, I'm sure you've seen this, Charles. I don't know, William, whether you have. There is Pathé footage available of this entire period. So there is one bit that I've played over again, and I got a bit obsessive looking at the, the footage because, you know, you cannot believe that this stuff is so recent that it's televised. But you've got this very grand car which purportedly has Ataturk in it, and they are driving up and down what looks like quite a grand street. And as you say, silence. There isn't violence. There's just silence as they go. Another person who is there uh, uh, unexpectedly is the young Ernest Hemingway, who's reporting for the Toronto Star. What's he up to, Giles? Well, actually, um, Hemingway wrote a short story called On the Quayside of Smyrna or On the Key of Smyrna. But in fact, he was never in Smyrna. Um, He was actually actually further north. Oh, um, Ernest. (laughs) (laughs) He was was reporting for the Toronto Star on the the vast waves of refugees that were coming out of Anatolia and trying to get anywhere safe. Uh, However, he he interviewed a number of people who were on the key of Smyrna, hence uh, the story that he wrote. But no, uh, he wasn't there at the time. We said earlier that the town of Smyrna had been this fantastic haven for the Armenians in the First World War. The Armenians had been massacred, driven off in, into the interior, but Smyrna, they're protected. And now they are facing the Turks for the first time. What happens? The Armenians are terrified at this point. It's the 10th of September and violence is beginning to spill into the streets. And the Armenians are the most worried of all because they know exactly what happened a few years earlier in 1915 and they're worried this is going to happen to them. And sure enough, on that day, violence breaks out in their quarter. A lot of the Armenians gather in the the Prelacy building, which is where they hope they'll find some sort of safety. But they then receive some pretty terrible news is that a, ch- a man called General Nureddin has been appointed governor of Smyrna. General Nureddin is known to hate all ethnic minorities. He is a Turk for the Turks. And this is very, this signals very bad news indeed. One of the first things that General Nureddin does, he calls Metropolitan Chrysostom to his offices. Mm-hmm. And just to, just to remind people, because we, we mentioned him in the last episode, this is a rather bombastic cleric who has a, is a nationalist himself, is a Greek nationalist who has reveled quite a lot in in the Greek takeover of Smyrna, who was told to sit down and be quiet by the governor, who is now vilified in in Greece, ironically, because he knew this would cause trouble. So this is a bombast of a man himself. Exactly. And so he is called into General Nureddin's office. We don't know what happened, what he actually said. But then Chrysostom comes out onto the steps uh, of the administration building. And it is uh, Nureddin is said to have said to the crowd, do with him what you want. Mm. And they do. They stab him. They gouge his eyes out. He's killed in the most horrific fashion possible. And so this is really the the public start of the uh, atrocities and violence that are now going to consume the city. Yeah, I mean, I I heard that he didn't die immediately. You know, they took his eyes, they took his ears, they, you know, mutilated his face. But, you know, he he lived for a bit longer than, than that. Yes, and and he um, this was all watched on by a contingent of French guards who happened to be uh, in the area at the time, who described it in some in in vivid detail, um, but did absolutely nothing to intervene. 
And this is the point in which Mustafa Kemal sends a telegram to the League of Nations saying the Turks had an excited spirit and therefore could not be responsible for any massacres. So things are not looking promising at this point. They had an excited spirit, but they also had gallon drums of uh, gasoline, uh, of petrol, which they now began bringing into the city. And they begin, began storing it very close to the Armenian quarter. And this was uh, witnessed by a number of eyewitnesses. They also, and this is largely the irregular forces who are fighting alongside Kemal's Ataturk's regular army. They're coming into town. They are drunk and they begin committing appalling atrocities and rapes. Again, at this point, it's largely against the Armenian community. Of course, it has to be remembered, are very easy to attack and identify because uh, the, the, the different nationalities of Smyrna tend to live in their own quarters. So all the Armenians are in one place. Yeah, and, and I, we should, at this point again, and we, t- we touched on this in the first episode on, on Smyrna, there are two sides that have very different recollections of what happens. But you went to the Levantine community for a lot of the, the first-hand accounts because, in your words, they, they were not committed to either side. I mean, they were sort of in the middle. Is I mean, just remind us of, of sources and the difficulty in getting eyewitness accounts that you trust. Yeah, well, when when I wrote this book or researched this book, the, there was no archive for the Levantine community in Smyrna. So I literally had to track down and contact the various families who'd lived there and asked, do you have any letters? Do you have any diaries? What have you got from this time? And of course, uh, I found that they had the most remarkable collection of personal you know, memoranda uh, that they, they handed over to me. So one of, I mentioned earlier, the venerable spinster Hortense Woods, she <laughs> kept a daily diary, a very detailed daily diary of every Everything that was unfolding in the in the city, and of course, her story became even more extraordinary because Ataturk chose her mansion as his headquarters. Right, right. So she was sitting in one room, and he was in the other, and she right. was sort of noting down everything he was saying. So he's he's there while all of this is unraveling in rivers of blood around him. I mean, are these sort of the Levantine accounts that tell you that Greek prisoners of war were then forced out of their homes and and forced to? march through the city saying, long live Mustafa Kamal. I mean, is that is that the kind of thing that you get? Yeah. So I chose the Levantines as my principal eyewitnesses because, in a sense, they didn't mind who ran Smyrna, right. Turk or Greek, as long as they could continue to make them their fortunes. So um, I regarded them as the most reliable witnesses. I have to say some of the Americans also, I found their eyewitness accounts to be particularly reliable. Uh, some of the nurses who worked there and some of the uh, who worked in the various mm. collegiate institutes uh, run by the Americans in the city. Because again, they don't intervene. The Americans are sitting watching, for example, Chrysostom be hacked uh, hacked to bits, or indeed the Armenians, because the Armenian quarter is not far from the American consulate, and yet they do not intervene. They are forbidden from, from doing anything to save the Greeks or the Armenians. And and it's sort of more cynical than that, actually, because remember earlier we mentioned 21 Allied warships in the Bay of Smyrna. Now, these warships could have done a great deal to help, mm. but um, as crowds of refugees are beginning to gather on the a quayside, 10,000, 30,000, 50,000, 150,000. By the 12th of September, there are 150,000 desperate people on the quayside screaming as they're being beaten and attacked by uh, Turkish soldiers. In the Bay of Smyrna, on the warships, the, the, the naval officers are watching this and they're, they're, they're appalled by the, the scenes that are taking place just a few hundred yards from where they are. The screams are so loud that the, um, the captain, the commander of the uh, flagship, orders the ship's band to play music to drown out 
the the sound of the screaming. I can't bear and, it. And I have to say, he then uh, he then goes off to dinner with yeah. all his senior officers. This is Admiral Sir Osmond de Beauvoir Brock, <laughs> who is having drinking fine wine and dining well while all this is taking place within eyesight. So, Jazz, you tell the story at this point of this of this character Duncan Wallace, who sort of fulfills the inevitable role of the of the completely hopeless Brit blundering in. Go on. But de- but desperately concerned about his family. So mm-hmm. he thinks that uh, if he dresses in full formal attire, this is probably the best way to get through the, the ranks of Turkish irregulars, which um, <laughs> which duly happens. So, yes, some uh, many of the, uh, the the grandest families have decided to remain, you know, brazen it out, remain in their houses while this is taking place. But even they, by the 12th and 13th of September, where everything changes, even they realise the end has come. Right. And, and you know, the, the kind of screaming that you're talking about, that these ships are now, you know, sort of playing band music to try and drown out. I just There are certain aspects of this that just make me viscerally feel sick. This is one of them. Our, our very good friend, Christina Lamb, has written about rape being an instrument of war and still is an instrument of war. But you've got young girls at the age of 12. You've got some really unpleasant accounts and harrowing accounts of very young women being dragged off. Very difficult to read these accounts, and and you have to choose with care what you're going to put in the book because they are they are graphic, unvarnished accounts of what happens when a drunken irregular army comes into town, hell bent on revenge. And yeah, there are girls. I mean, you know, when you have your own daughters as yeah. well who are that sort of age. When I was writing this book, it sort of um, touches you inside. Um, it's it's horrific what took place. Is it is it deliberate or is it just the blood is up? I mean, I I want to know is this a allowed to take place because it is expedient to cleanse a a, a city of a certain ethnicity? Or is it what happens, you know, sometimes in in previous episodes, we've we've done things where the bashy bazooks are out of control and they just do things that the central high command don't approve of and, and don't order them to do. I think you have this problem with any army that doesn't have uh, an, a, a non-commissioned officers in its ranks. So you see that in the Russian army, what's taking place in Ukraine. They don't have what all Western armies have, is these officers who've, who've worked their way up, who uh, are used to fighting and, and, in, and, and instilling discipline in small platoons, small groups of men. So Ataturk's force coming into the city was largely composed of brigands and irregular forces who didn't have that local discipline, that those local local based officers who are able to tell them not to do this. But Ataturk, who we've previously seen, can be, as at Gallipoli, an extremely generous victor and who is uh, in many ways a, a sort of phenomenally heroic figure. He is not intervening at this point, is he? This is something that his, his supporters cannot point to as, as one of Ataturk's great moments. He's he's not saving the Armenians. He's not doing anything to to stop the massacres which are happening around him. And the, and the Armenians who've escaped massacres up to now are finished off at this point. Yeah, because it, tot- it suits his purpose if all the other ethnic nationalities in Smyrna are driven out, and then he will have his his perfect Turkish city. So he, he has absolutely no interest in in trying to save all these desperate nationalities. So there are people now. I mean, they they've seen enough in the city to now congregate at the quayside, and they they are basically standing there with their arms outstretched to these warships from Allied troops and saying, "Help us! Help us! Take us away!" Not one lifeboat sent not one ship and why what is stopping them what is stopping them from doing that i mean apart from you know they've been ordered not to and i know that those people who are are manning those ships feel very differently does this all really come down to something as boring as oil at the end of the day 
<laughs> well, I think that they were under orders. The senior commanders of the British and the uh, French and the American fleets, ship, warships in the bay, they were under orders to do nothing because the governments of those countries were already looking at striking deals with the clearly victorious Ataturk. And they didn't want to be seen to be helping the Greeks and Armenians. I think it is a deeply cynical move. The, the commander of the American fleet, Admiral Mark Bristol, was um, overtly pro-Turkish. And he took along, he had with him two journalists who he instructed on what they were allowed to report and what tone they should be taking in their articles. So, I, yeah, I think it was um, deeply cynical. And as you say, in these first days, they did absolutely nothing. By the 13th of September, there are 700,000 mm. desperate refugees on the quayside. And they're looking to the Allied warships to save them. And the Allied warships are doing nothing. And is, is oil, I mean, I said, is it as boring as oil? But is this because of future deals that, you know, the so-called Western powers might be able to do with Ataturk? I think oil is a very large part of it, but but gen more generally, trade. I think uh, you know uh, they want to do strike deals with this with the victor. They don't want to be seen to be dealing with the vanquished. Giles, you mentioned earlier that the there is petroleum being brought into the city actively, and it's being stored near the Armenian quarter. This is actually something you, you you've researched yourself, and and this is an important new detail that's come out of your your work in the archives. What happens with that petroleum? So this is the great sort of question that hangs over Smyrna, is who set fire to the city? Who torched it? And uh, it's highly controversial. As, as we said earlier, ask a Greek one, you know, they'll tell you one thing, ask a Turk, they'll tell you another. So I looked at a lot of the uh, source material I could find, eyewitness accounts. And it seems to me, without a shadow of a doubt, that the Turkish forces, both regular and irregular, started dousing buildings with pe with petroleum. They started in the Armenian quarter. I have this extraordinary account from Miss Minnie Mills, who was a teacher in Smyrna, who uh, worked at the American Collegiate Institute, who describes um, the watching Turkish soldiers pour petrol up and you going up and down streets, uh, pouring petrol onto onto the buildings, and these were then set. Uh, they were then set on fire. One very important detail happened on the evening of the 12th of September, just before the fire started, the wind shifted direction completely, 180 degree turn in the direction of the wind. This meant, I mean, to, to if you're cynical or maybe, you know, uh, this is what happened, that if you set fire to the city, once the wind had changed, the, the entire city would be consumed with the exception of the Turkish quarter. Giles, explain to me, though, why this is in the interests of Ataturk. I can understand him wanting to drive out a minority, but he doesn't have to set the place on fire to do that. He can just drive them into the sea or, or march them into the interior. Why does he destroy what is the second most prosperous, the economic hub other than Istanbul of the entire Anatolian region? First, it's not clear how much he's in charge of the irregular forces inside the city. They're generally under the control of Nureddin, who uh, does is not quite so enlightened and open-minded uh, 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 as Ataturk. But I think you also have to consider what these troops have been through. They, they've been through absolute hell uh, uh, fighting their way across uh, Anatolia. They are a rabble. They've experienced extreme violence uh, and atrocities. I think there's just, there comes a point which, you know, we see today in Ukraine, there's a, where just atrocity becomes an article of war. And I think it's, it's maybe as simple as that. I, I'm not sure there was any grand scheme to burn down the entire city of, of Smyrna. But it just events just span out of control, I think. But if petroleum is brought in, that's a definitely a conscious, active 
mechanism of war. That's, that's for sure. Yeah, there, yeah. Were, there were certainly there were large elements within the Turkish army who simply wanted to, to destroy the place. As I said, we said in the first episode, Smyrna had always been infidel Smyrna. It had always been a blot on 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 the Turkish coastline. Even um, Ataturk himself, who'd visited the city, before, I think before the First World War, had uh, described his distaste at seeing a city full of Greeks. So there was no love for the city of Smyrna. Well, at this point, let's take a break. And when we come back, let's find out what the rest of the world knows and thinks about what's going on here. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Now, we were talking about the horror that is unfolding in Smyrna itself. And I was always interested to know what the world knew about this. Turns out they knew everything. Uh, I looked through the Guardian archives and I just came up with this from the 15th of September 1922 from their correspondent. A telegram received this afternoon from Smyrna reports terrible fire has broken out in the city. The Greek and Armenian quarters have been destroyed. The fire is spreading to other areas. The inhabitants are in a state of panic. Italian ships in the port are endeavouring to take off members of the Italian colony. Smyrna almost completely destroyed. And also, you know, what's weird is that Pathé have footage. So there is somebody on a ship. Have you seen this stuff, Giles? There's someone on a ship watching the city burn and taking footage of it. And you can see it in, in real time. What really struck me as startling was the little captions that went along. You know, with Pathé, you have a full page of graphics. And when you have this shot across the bay of all of these ships doing nothing, the caption comes up, Britain's watchdogs, majestic in their silent guard of the Dardanelles, are instantly ready. For what? They do nothing. For how long do they do nothing? It is 
extraordinary when you see not only the footage, but even if you just Google search the uh, images of, of the fire of Smyrna, it is on an unimaginable scale. This was a vast city and the entire thing is on fire. And you just see these this thick sort of mass of black smoke, which is hanging over the city, flames hundreds of feet uh, high shooting up into the sky. And the journalists you mentioned, of course, they're not inside Smyrna. They're on the warships reporting from a safe distance of several hundred yards. So all their reports are, are you know, at a distance without any accounts of what's really taking place, the violence, the atrocities, the rapes that are still taking place in amidst this inferno that's going on. Giles, you have one or two stories, however, of, of heroic acts of, uh, of, of humanitarian aid. You have a wonderful character, Aza Jennings. Asa Jennings is one of the most bizarre and curious characters in this sort of whole sorry affair, really. Asa Jennings was a, a small, squat, rather wimpy American member of the YMCA in Smyrna. Uh, he'd never really achieved anything in his life. He looked uh, a bit like a sort of a little frog with these big bulging eyes and round glasses. But he is really horrified by what's taking place. He's horrified that the American warships and allied warships in the bay are doing nothing to help anyone. And so he decides to make a stand. It's going to be the great moment of his life. And he establishes what he calls the American Relief Organization, which consists of one person, and that's him. And he, through extraordinary set of circumstances, manages to contact the Greek government and says, I am the head of the American Relief Organization. There are lots of Greek ships in and around the Bay of Smyrna, and I want to commandeer those and use them to rescue the Greeks of Smyrna. And to his astonishment, the Greek government says, oh, okay. And so thus begins Asa Jennings's great rescue mission. And again, I just want people to know this man because he's an unusual man. First of all, he has the guts, the sheer guts to face down the irregulars. And in, you know, even before he's contacted these Greek ships, said pregnant women and orphans are coming in here and I don't care what you say and what you're going to do to me, you're not coming anywhere close. And he knows what's been going on around him. But he is not this statuesque sort of Marvel hero. <laughs> this is a man who has curvature of the spine. He's small. He's tiny. He's he's, he's shorter than me and I'm tiny. He's five foot tall. Um, I mean, just tell, tell us more about this this mildly spoken man who says, not on my watch. Yeah, who'd never achieved anything in his life. And and um, he commandeers these ships. He's given command of a fleet of sort of 12 or 15 huge great ships. He comments at the time, he said, um, uh, as, he's, as he's made commander, he said, hitherto all I knew about ships was how to be sick in them. Yeah. <laughs> I love, I love <laughs> and, that quote. And he now quote. finds himself as head of one of the greatest humanitarian rescue missions of the early 20th century. And, and to his credit, he rescues many, many tens of thousands of people, plucks them from the Kiev Smyrna, transfers them onto these, uh, these warships uh, or, or ships, and then takes them off to the safety of the Greek islands off the shore. So this is a sort of Dunkirk situation where you have troops now at the quayside waiting to be taken off. Thanks to Aza, they're they're beginning to be taken off. But behind is not is not the, the the Nazis coming for them, but this incredible fire. If they stay if they stay on the quayside, they're going to be roasted. 
You're absolutely right. Behind them is a wall of fire described vividly by some of the journalists. We, you know, as I, uh, as I mentioned earlier, hundreds of feet high flames uh, towering up into the sky. And at the same time, the Turkish forces are rounding up any Greek uh, men of fighting age who are going to be then deported into the interior. And most of them will never be seen again. Can I just read a quote, a quote to you from, from one tourist? I mean, it's just I think this sums it up, what they're facing. Uh, Oran Reber, who says, um, I mean, he's arrived, he's a tourist, he's arrived in Spain a few days earlier. Very bad timing, Oran. But he says, uh, there was a choice of three kinds of death. The fire behind, the Turks waiting in the side streets, the ocean in front. I love this guy. He's sort of backpacker turns up in the middle of the kind of biggest humanitarian catastrophe of the period. And there's one quote that I is quite I feel very poignant is George Horton, the American consul, who's now on the safety of an American warship in the Bay of Smyrna, and appalled at how little the uh, Allied forces have done to bring off any of these refugees onto their warships. He just looks at what he's seeing and he says, one of the keenest impressions I brought away with me from Smyrna was a feeling of shame that I belonged to the human race. Yeah, I mean, when when Asa Jennings' boats start carrying people back to the, to the Greek ships, do the others, uh, the other ships, actually break with the protocol that they've been set and and are shamed into also taking people back? Because I've I've seen again on this Pathé footage, you know, the, the bay filled with little boats. So you, you, you've used the right word. They're shamed into doing it because after a few days of watching incredibly harrowing scenes taking place within, you know, uh, eyesight of the of the officers and the men on board these vessels, it's the men on the vessels, these warships, who insist that something has to be done. And this is where they begin to launch their lifeboats from the ships and row across the harbour and begin to pluck off uh, some of the women and children on the quayside. But it was too little, too late, and they certainly didn't have the capacity to bring off anything like the number that our rather wimpy hero Asa Jennings is managing to do with his you know large Greek ships don't you be talking smack about Asa Jennings Asa Jennings is a, one of the my most favorite <laughs> characters in, in in history so uh, the the fire is burning there are some people being taken off the scene again is uh, the amount of journalism across all of this is just startling to me you know the footage of the the the, the children these wide-eyed terrified children on decks not knowing where their families are, not knowing what's to become of them. What is the aim? You know, what are, what are people going to do with the refugees? What is to become of them? Well, that's a very good question. And I think that's a question that everyone was asking at the time. What the hell do we do with these, you know, hundreds of thousands of people? And remember, we mentioned Ernest Hemingway earlier up in, he's in Anatolia still watching even vaster numbers of refugees coming out. Where are they going to go? Well, a lot of them eventually will end up in Greece. And in Crete, if you go to Crete today, there's still um, the villages that they call the Turks. And of course, they're not Turks, they're Greeks, yes, but they're yes. Greeks who lived in Anatolia. And they're still quite distinct from the local Cretans. And occasionally there are, there are burnings and fields go up in flames and so on, even to this day, uh, because the, 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 the local Cretans regard them as, as Turks. <laughs> Yes, and 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 uh, forever after, these refugees were always looked at as second-class citizens by Greeks, and so you have the the famous quarter in in Athens, which is called New Smyrna, which is where a lot of them settled. But they were never accepted. You know, a, a lot of them uh, didn't speak Greek, or they spoke a, a very bizarre dialect of Greek when they came there. They simply were not looked at uh, upon as Greeks. A number of them, a large number, went to America, and it was very interesting when my book came out in America. I did a book tour there, and you know. Uh, 
you'll both of you will probably know when you do a book tour of America, you tend to go East Coast, and if you're lucky, they'll send you to the West Coast as well. They sent me as well as those places to off to Ohio. I went to Akron, Ohio, and did a talk there. And my audience was entirely composed of descendants of Spaniards who oh, were wow. fascinated by the story because they knew absolutely nothing about it because their grandparents had had such painful experiences that they had refused ever to say anything about this it. This is the partition. This is the Holocaust. This is the Armenian genocide. In yeah. all these horrific stories, no one will talk about it for two generations. It's echoes on echoes on echoes. And do you know, actually, there are two places I, I found in America because I, I was in, entertained by your your book tour story. But um, there's a there is a Smyrna in Tennessee, and there's a new Smyrna beach in Florida. And Giles, tell us the sort of numbers that we're talking about. How many? How many killed? How many rescued? What's the, what's the scale of the horror here? It's so hard to get any accurate figures. I mean, t- we tens of thousands were killed. Many hundreds of thousands of refugees were eventually plucked off the quayside. But it's so disputed, and, th- and there are no accurate records. It was simply a great humanitarian catastrophe. The U.S. Emergency Committee. I've got figures here. Um, made a rough estimate, and these can't be taken at all uh, as, as final, but they say about 100,000 killed and 160,000 deported to the interior. Another estimate is 190,000 dead. So it's it, I mean, by any scale, this is a, a major humanitarian catastrophe. And of course, we should say that it's going to get a lot worse because in 1923, we have the Treaty of Lausanne, which puts into legal form the exchange of populations. And this is the formal expulsion of one and a half million ethnic Greeks from Turkey and the expulsion of 400,000 ethnic Turks from Greece. This massive exchange of populations, which will uproot families who've lived in villages for centuries. That's the only life they know. They find themselves kicked out, um, taking with them you know, their, their wife, their children, and a few pots and pans, and having to make new lives in a, in a country that is not very welcoming. And when you go to Turkey today, all along that coast, you find these Greek villages, which were flourishing, large, populous, prosperous places, making olive oil, make it, uh, living uh, on part of the fig business, uh, and they're completely empty. They're left, in many cases, as as they were in 1922. You could walk in tomorrow into one of these villages and repopulate them if, if the will was there. And I find it extraordinary how quickly centuries of history can be sort of just ripped up. This all happened within the, the space of a few months, you know, that this all came to a terrible end. And, and that, that great civilization was, uh, was, was, was no more. And what's so extraordinary to me also is the way this happens, not just in Anatolia and Turkey itself, but, you know, you have the same thing happening with, with all the old mosques and the Turkish, ethnic Turkish settlements in Greece. Many of them were, are destroyed afterwards. And, and there are pictures of many, many fine Ottoman mosques, which are no longer there in Turkey, ditto important Greek churches and Greek monuments all over Turkey. And, you know, the, the great rallying cry all along was Turkey for the Turks. And by 1923, that really was the case. The only remaining Greeks, and they were a very small community, were the last dwindling community left in the city of Constantinople. The Fanariots. Yeah. Yes, which, which would uh, ultimately be booted out as well in uh, 1955. And now, today, there are a handful of Greeks who of, of original descent who still live in the city. A few Armenians left in, in Kadikoi, uh, a few Suriani, Syrian Christians living in the Turabdin. But otherwise, it's what? It's a 
95, 96% Turkish state today. But we should also acknowledge that, and, 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 and this is important, that what was a catastrophe for the Greeks and led to the end of the entire Hellenistic presence in Anatolia is a rebirth for Turkey. And that had Ataturk not stopped the Greek army, we might have seen exactly the same atrocities played out on Turkish peasants uh, instead. Which they were, of course, as the army retreat, the Greek army retreated from its great defeat in central Anatolia. A numerous and very uh, less publicized atrocities were committed by those troops, which also fueled the fury of the Turks when they entered into Smyrna. Um, there was violence on every side. But I think you're, you're absolutely right to point out, very importantly, that for the Turks, this was their great moment. This was the birth of modern Turkey. And yes, it happened in, in atrocious circumstances. But for them, this was their great victory. This is what so many of them had longed for for so long. And, and just as people like Lloyd George had no interest in, uh, in, in what happened to the Palestinians, the, the English seemed to be completely oblivious to the claim the Turks had on this land. And had they been defeated by the Greek army, there may well have been no modern state of Turkey at all. Lloyd George throughout this was, I think, blinkered. He was fanatically pro-Greek throughout this. And of course, we mustn't forget that this catastrophe ultimately brought down his government. Tell us about that, because uh, he, he is forced into a, a, a complete diplomatic maelstrom by this. He has not counted on Ataturk fighting back. He, he's, he's, he's left completely exposed by this catastrophe. What happens to Lloyd George? He is well, we still, we still at this point, we still have British uh, forces up around Constantinople. French and Italians are there as well. And Ataturk is beginning to threaten them. He wants to move into Constantinople as well. The Italians and French have no intention of fighting Ataturk, uh, and they quietly withdraw, leaving the British looking slightly foolish with um, uh, Lloyd George wanting to carry on uh, to hold on to the city until his advisors uh, suggest that this is a very foolish manoeuvre indeed. And there's actually a face-off, isn't there, at Kanakale? There's the two forces facing each other but with barbed wire between them. And it, it never actually turns into a, a hot confrontation, but it could. It, it nearly does, exactly. So yeah. nearly goes into war, but, uh, but happily no, uh, the British uh, pull back. And at that point, Ataturk has got pretty much everything he wants. He is the ultimate victor. This is the only time in history that Lord Curzon, who I think is the foreign secretary at this point, is ever recorded as bursting into tears uh, at his own failure. So this this whole world of, of Brits who, who thought they could remake the world, this is the beginning of, uh, of a whole situation that, they, that where the world is no longer following their dictates. I think one of Curzon's great dreams, as it was the great dream of many people, was to be able to walk into the great church of uh, Hagia Sophia and hear a Christian mass taking place there. And it was not going to happen after that. But again, this is the great moment to triumph for Ataturk. Tell us what happens to Ataturk at this point. Well, at this point is really, uh, it's the great turning point in Turkish history. The Turkish Republic is born. Ataturk brings in all his reforms. He westernizes Turkey. He changes the alphabet. He bans the old fez. It is a complete transformation. The old Ottoman system with all its idiosyncrasies disappears overnight. And uh, Ataturk is head of this new modern state. Now, this is a series on... Ottoman history, and this is the final hours of the Ottoman dynasty. In 1922, the 
decision is made by Ataturk and his men to do away with the caliphate. And the last caliph, Abdul Majid, is his palace, the Dormabache palace, uh, is surrounded in the middle of the night. And, and there's extraordinary records of the last Selim leak taking place on the 29th of February at a mosque outside the Dormabache. On the 3rd of March, the Grand National Assembly in Ankara abolishes the caliphate. Dormabache is surrounded by troops. Abdul Majid was reading the Quran, or by some accounts, essays of Montaigne. I love that detail. <laughs> Late at night, when Adnan Bey and the prefect of police come to tell him that he has to leave at dawn. His family and servants begin to weep. Uh, the freedom of the life in the West was offered as a consolation. And his daughter, Durashava, who ends up in Hyderabad in India, uh, uh, the, low, the sole survivor who I've met of the, all these people replies, I do not want that kind of freedom. And, and he's put very nicely this final touch for the Ottoman dynasty. He's put onto the Orient Express, which I love. And mm. uh, he finds his way to Nice. And a few years later, he's spotted by the correspondent of Time magazine, quote, he may be seen strolling with a mien of great dignity along the beach near Nice attired in swimming trunks only, carrying a large parasol. That's the last glimpse we have of the last Ottoman caliph at the end of this series on the Ottoman Empire. Giles Milton, thank you so very, very much for that, that fantastic double bill. And uh, good luck with your podcast, which, is, which, uh, which, which if this is anything to go by, will be absolutely unmissable. Thank you very much for having me on. Great pleasure. It's goodbye from me, Anita Arnand. And goodbye from me, William Drimple.